Hebrews chapter 8 is about the new covenant, which means the gospel. It's about Christ who has given his life for us, and that promise is secure and sealed in his blood. We need to benefit from the gospel. I watched a video. Uh, we showed a movie on Friday. Paul Washer was one of the speakers on it. He's a pretty passionate speaker. He was talking about how the gospel in that movie, American Gospel, is not just for unbelievers. And you can't assume that when a crowd is present, even this size, a spring day crowd, that all of you are believers. But the gospel should be presented at church because you have unbelievers, but it's also for believers. As believers, we should benefit afresh from the truths of the gospel because gospel is promise. The gospel is the promise of your eternal life, the promise of you being forgiven of all your sins. It is a promise that should sort of cause the heartbeat to, uh, the heartbeat pace to get going, increasing, and there should be excitement surrounding the gospel. And that's what my goal is as we explore Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 should be read in handfuls. I'm convinced of that as I've been studying through the chapter. I tried to create a sermon to get us through the whole of chapter 8. It didn't happen. But, um, but it, should be, it should be read in a panned out perspective. A lot of times the details of the Bible, though they are blessings and they build up and they edify. I love the details of scripture, but sometimes the details can obscure the big picture idea that is brought to us in scripture. These epistles were read all the way through at one time, like you would read a letter. And that's how we should look at Hebrews 8, because it teaches us the gospel applications for our lives. A lot of times in the details, when you when you're like going through a snowstorm or an ice storm, it's like the details are like flakes in your eyes rather than looking from the hotel room down at someone trying to get from point A to point B. In college, um, I was counseled very wisely when I was overwhelmed at some assignments that what you're overwhelmed by oftentimes is like a penny that's taken close to your eye. If you put it down on the desk, it's much smaller. You get a bigger picture in the context of the whole. That's what I want to do this morning with Chapter 8, remember, look at verse 1 just to get a running start. This is a summary point. This is a summarizing section of this great letter. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Anytime an author says that, you should pay attention and sit up. There's a lot that's in the meaning of what's going to follow that. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There is sort of an overarching summarization here to say Jesus is better than all of the priests that have gone before. And we've been talking about that a lot because Hebrews talks about that a lot. But the second sword thrust that the author of Hebrews is going to put before you that connects to Jesus' superiority is the gospel promises that rain down from him being superior. His superiority isn't just about him in and of himself. The glory is his, but the blessings rain down to us in these gospel promises. And that's what's happening here. You see verse two, a minister in the holy places. This is Christ. He's, he's ministering to us as our advocate intercessor in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This isn't talking about what 
Israel set up in the Old Testament times under the Old Covenant to these people who are New Testament Christians, but Jewish Christians. We're not supposed to just ceremonialize that. We're supposed to let the ceremony of the Old Testament shoot us upward and look at heaven and say, this is what it was all about. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Talking about the mundane over and over again. Daily sacrifices for daily sins and ceremonies with the day of atonement. All of that was happening. It says, thus it is necessary for this priest, Christ, to have something to offer. Now we know that from Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9, Hebrews 7, 27, 9, 14, that the once for all sacrifice was given for us one time as opposed to the daily sacrifices or the yearly sacrifices. But this one time sacrifice applies to you on a daily basis. That's what he's saying. The, the gifts of the sacrifice rain down from heaven. The ceremonial system takes our hearts vertical and then Christ's superiority is raining down the blessings of the atonement every single day into our lives. That's what the author is saying. Don't go back to ceremony. Look up into heaven and see that Christ is giving us the gift of intercessory love on a daily basis. Verse four. Now, if we, he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. That's a little bit sarcasm here. Uh, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. I think that the ceremonial system was still in place, even though the new covenant was established. Christ predicted it at Passover. He established it through his death, burial, and resurrection. The church had been born. But this is probably before Titus, General Titus came in and steamrolled um, Israel and burned it to the ground in AD 70. So the, the temple was still up. The sacrifices were still going er- erroneously. That was happening. And basically the author is saying, look, Jesus wouldn't even fit into that program now because he's not from the line of Aaron. He's not from the tribe of Aaron anyway. That's what verse four is saying. Verse five, they, the ceremonial system, serve a copy and a shadow, a foreshadowing of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now I want to do something that's dangerous in the New Testament church. I want to read to you a lot of the Old Testament this morning. Seriously, yeah, I do. I want to go there. I want to go there because Hebrews comes to life if you have a context for what the author is saying. And I want you to sort of back into some of these Old Testament paragraphs to get the big picture, the panned out perspective of what is going on. For instance, in verse 5 at the end, it says, he, that's Moses, was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 24 going into chapter 25. 
So Exodus chapter 24 gives you a little context. Exodus 24 is where Moses had already been up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. He's going back and forth communicating as an intercessor in in essence between God and man and the elders at the bottom of the mountain and you have the crowd of Israel and this is what's going on. Verse 15, Exodus 24, 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He's interacting with God and what he's learning about as he interacts with the Lord is about the temple furniture. Chapter 25 of Exodus talks about it, the Ark of the Covenant. This is what you'll need to offer sacrifices, to to have the mercy seat, to have everything ornamented just the way the Lord would want it. This is the table of bread. This is the golden lampstand. This is what it will look like on earth. But it's reflecting something that's in heaven. And Hebrews 8 verse 5 is quoting Exodus 25, 40. Exodus 25, 40 says, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is shown you on the mountain. And Hebrews 8, 5 calls that a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. Everything according to the pattern that's shown you on the mountain. What that doesn't mean is that what was on earth was an exact replica of what heaven is gonna look like. But at the same time, don't dismiss the symbolism found in the Old Testament imagery. All the things that were built were to point heavenward and to say that this is a picture or a foretaste of the holy of holies in heaven. What what does this matter? Verse 6 takes us basically from up in heaven to the blessings raining down to us on earth. And if you don't get into verse six and following, you easily could just say, well, this is a nice Bible lesson where we're tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I, I, thank you. You know, do I get a grade for that? Do I get credits? No, we're in the Bible for our hearts. We want our hearts to be lifted, to be raised daily, hourly, with the word of God. This is a fresh series of promises that are given to us that are, that are meant to cause vitality in our lives where we can have hope and encouragement. That's what this is all about. That's where verse six is taking us. Look at verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, the old copies and shadows. The old as the covenant, he The covenant, which is the new covenant, he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It's better. It's better. It's better. We have a superior priest, but we have superior promises that are meant to transform our lives. We have a superior covenant mediator who is better. So I want to approach uh, verses 6 through 9 and and then ultimately verses 6 through 13 as we'll go into there next time. Answering two questions. First of all, the first question is this. Why, is, why did the old covenant fail? What was wrong with the old covenant? Why did the old covenant fail? In one sense, and 
you know, I have some sanctified skepticism when I approach the Bible too. I, I read it and I go, why did God set all this up when it was basically doomed from the start? Why? I ask those questions because I want to answer them for myself. And hopefully you're asking that and want that answered as well. It's an important piece of the puzzle because you got to see something fail to see what we really have, what we really have as better promises of a better covenant that was promised verses six through seven. We have an intercessor who's obtained a ministry that's much more excellent. He attained this by being raised from the dead. He mediates a covenant that's better with better promises, better promises. What are the promises? They're the promises that are listed before us that are direct quotes from Jeremiah 31. So where's the gospel quoted from? Jeremiah 31. That's what we're talking about. The Old Testament is inspired scripture. The Old Testament is worthy of our time. The Old Testament should not be thrown away. I'm telling you, I won't name names this morning, but there is a very popular preacher today that I've seen on little videos where he's saying that we basically need to chunk the Old Testament in the trash and throw it away. That's my version of what he's saying. He's saying it a lot more eloquently to get away with it, but we don't want to dismiss how the Old Testament shares the gospel and it's tied in here in Hebrews chapter eight. The promises are better because they're different than the mosaic promises of the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a list of blessings and cursings. These are a list of They're a representation of what's called the retribution principle. If you do well, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, if you abandon God, you will be cursed. This is Deuteronomy 28. Look at verse one. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord, your God will set you up high above all the nations of the earth. This is what Moses also wrote. He wrote this right before Israel was going into the promised land. It's Deuteronomy, meaning the second law or the reiteration of the law that he had been given at Sinai. He's reiterating it, synthesizing it, boiling it down and sending the children of Israel into the promised land, but it's still under the Mosaic covenant. Verse two, all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be your city. Blessed shall be the fruit of the, your womb. Verse five, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you, you shall be when you come in. Blessed when you go out. Verse seven, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. All these blessings of prosperity and goodness are there for you, are there for you, but only if you obey. How do you think that's gonna go? How's how's that work in your life? Conditional love, conditional blessings. Hey, if I do enough, I'm good. I'm good with God. God's good with me. If I don't do something or if I do something wrong, I am living in dread of what's going to happen to me. That's the system that this was fashioned after. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, 
your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be your city and your field. Cursed shall be your basket and eating bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, fruit of your ground. Cursed shall be you when you go out and come in. There's curses that were going to be sent, pestilence, wasting disease. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down and you, and on you until you are destroyed. It just goes on from there. The enemies will be there to overtake you. Blessings and cursings. It's dangerous. Absolutely dangerous. It was a dangerous covenant. It was a covenant that the apostle Paul called the letter that kills. The new covenant is so much better. It's based on heart transformation. Aren't we so glad, and I don't think it's just a a throwaway statement to say, isn't it wonderful to live in this time period in God's plan and story? Aren't we so thankful to be part of the new covenant, a changed heart that's been clearly displayed? Anybody in the Old Testament that was saved was saved by a changed heart. Don't get me wrong. It's just been clarified and promised to us in Christ so we understand that we are under the new covenant, not limited to actions of obedience and disobedience, but unlimited in terms of changed attitudes from changed hearts. Look at verse seven of chapter eight for the first covenant. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hey, Old Testament Israel was looking. That word look is a strong word. They, they, were, they were wanting, they were struggling to find a solution. They were looking for something, seeking something, striving and demanding for a second covenant. The ministry of the old covenant, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, it's the letter that kills, verse 6, the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. It's called the ministry of condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3, 9. The covenant exposed people's sins. And yet this covenant, this old system still had glory. It wasn't without glory. It still stemmed the tide against sin. It did expose sins so people could repent. It did provide temporary sacrifices so that people would find God again and make things right again through that. But the glory in this covenant was never meant to be permanent. It was fading. Second Corinthians three, if you'll turn there, uh, it, it talks about this. It talks about this. I'm going to read from Exodus 34 though, as you're turning to second Corinthians three, unless you want to take the full tour, um, the, the broader tour, Exodus 34. That these two sections tie together. See, account where Moses, having received the law at Sinai in the midst of God's thundering glory, he comes down to find Israel worshiping the golden calf. Do you remember that? They were violating the law. Moses smashes the tablets. This is when he first went up Sinai. He comes down, he received the law. He smashes the tablets and he returns up the mountain to beg God for Israel's pardon and God forgives them and renews the covenant. And Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountain fasting. Well, this time when Moses comes down, he's got glory on his face. This is the glory of the old covenant. It was so much glory that it was actually frightening Aaron, his brother. And it was frightening all the people when they looked at him. 
Exodus 34, 29, it came down from Sinai, tablets of testimony in his hand. And as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near. Verse 34 says, when Moses had finished speaking with them because he was talking to all the people, he put a veil over his face. Then he would go and talk to the Lord. He would come back down. He would have the veil off, but ultimately he would put the veil back on his face. And this was something that he was doing over and over. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians 3 now, And look at verse 10. We understand why he was putting the veil on his face. It says, verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. There's a greater covenant glory. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, Paul is going to make a strong contrast between the boldness of Paul and the boldness of new covenant Christians and Moses. You say, well, Moses had it all. He had direct access to God. Show me that glory. He got to see God's glory pass. Will not let you go until I see your glory. I mean, he, he had a friendship with God like none other, right? No, he had a lesser opportunity than you have as a Christian. Look at this in verse 13. We are bold. We are very bold. Verse 12, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That glory was fading. That glory was never meant to fully succeed. So one of the reasons why the old covenant failed is we have better promises. We have something that supersedes it. And then secondly, verses eight and nine, the old covenant was based on Israel's obedience. It was all conditional. Look at verse eight back in Hebrews eight. It says, for he finds fault with them when he says, stop there. Did God find fault with his Mosaic covenant? Is that what that says? No, no. The law is good. The law is from God right? The law was fine. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem is with the people. It's how it is with us. The problem isn't with what God has given us in the word of God. The problem is always our sinful hearts that reject the accountability of the word of God. He found fault with them. It's important to see that the new covenant was restoring what was broken by Israel. And again, we need to back our way into the narrative. We've been kind of working chronologically backwards here. Sorry for doing that, but that's the way the Hebrews 8 unfolds. It's important to see the commitment that Israel had made in regards to the old covenant. And that's in Exodus 19. This is right before Moses is going up the mountain for the first time to meet with God at Mount Sinai. It was the third moon, uh, verse 1 after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness and Israel encamped before the mountain. 
While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now listen to verse five. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's repeated in first Peter regarding Christians. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before all the words that the Lord had commanded him. Listen to this. All the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken. We will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud and the people that the people may hear when I speak to you. Okay. So God goes up the mountain, thunderous clouds form. God is speaking to Moses. The people are hearing that. And then Exodus 24 is when one time when God comes down from the mountain to speak to the people on behalf of God giving the law. Then it says, then he said to Moses, Exodus 24, one, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. Listen to this. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Stop there a second. How many times have you made those kinds of commitments? This is called a bilateral covenant. This is a covenant that's conditional. It's conditional between God saying, if you obey, I will bless you. And the people saying, we will obey and we want blessing. That's a bilateral covenant. It's between two people. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of of oxen to the Lord. Verse six. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken. We will do, and we will be obedient. So there's the recitation of the law. And there's the response of, uh, of, of we will obey. And Moses had thrown half of the blood against the altar as a, as a symbol of their commitment. He's sealing it up. And what does he do? And Moses took the blood, the rest of the blood, and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. With everything you've said, we're sealing this up. We're throwing blood one way, and it's based on also your commitment and obedience. And this is a sealed up covenant together. It's the reason Moses threw half the blood against the altar and the other half on the people because it's bilateral. D.A. Carson said this. He said, this is a covenant sealed with the blood with dual sprinkling, some on the altar, some on the people, separated by the recitation of the covenant obligations and Israel's assent suggests a covenant based in their obedience. It was splattered blood that symbolized the death of the covenant makers if they became covenant breakers. 
This is a bilateral covenant. It's different than what had happened some 700 years before. It was 2000 BC when Abram had a covenant made between him and God. That wasn't a bilateral covenant. God puts Abram to sleep. He said, you know, gather the animals, cut them in half, lay it out. He puts Abram to sleep. He causes the sky to go dark. And God himself as a fiery pot goes through those sacrifices as the guarantor of this covenant. It will happen. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed. The, the people after your lineage will be as many as the stars that you uh, can't even count in the sky. Genesis 15, 12, Genesis 12. What God was saying in that act is that if I don't fulfill this covenant, you can break me apart like these animals. Now, that's impossible. In other words, God will keep the covenant. But the blood here back in Exodus 24 also depicts grace. The ceremony of blood that was thrown on the people, sprinkling on them also was a foreshadowing of the purification of Christ. It represented the new relationship that they had with him. So again, how did this covenant work out? The whole point of chapter eight is to say, there's a new one. Listen, you have a better covenant. All of what happened on Mount Sinai was real. Those were real people in real life situations with real sin issues. You're real people sitting here in your circumstance on Mount Flattop. Just kidding. I mean, we're, we're in our life circumstance with real issues and they needed to follow their old covenant by faith, but we get to follow the new covenant by faith. We have something better. Verse nine, look at the tender, look at the tender tones of read verse eight. And then verse nine, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. We're going to come back to that verse nine, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There's, there's endearing language here. There was love where God had rescued. Again, we're backing through the narrative here. He had rescued um, Israel out of Egypt. At Sinai, I mean, Israel accepted the law, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. But the law wasn't effective to stem the tide against their evil. During the years of wilderness, they persistently murmured against God and his servant Moses they entered Canaan. They fell prey, prey to gods, false gods, and Baal worship common in Israel. Hezekiah was a king, a godly king. Josiah was a godly king. But by and large, Israel failed, in, and they just fell into apostasy over and over again. Remember the northern and southern kingdom? That's what's, that's what's represented back in verse 8, where you see the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That represents the kingdom that's split apart. You have David. King David, you have King Saul, but then King David was a godly king, but he fell into sin and reaped 
you know, the, the repercussions of his sin in Solomon's sin and immorality, someone who was wise, who knew God, but then his sin ultimately was judged. And there was a judgment where you have um, Jerob, King Jeroboam, and way to remember this, where the kingdom splits, he jumps, he goes north to Israel and you have 10 tribes of Israel and you have King Rehoboam and he remains. Jeroboam jumps, Rehoboam remains, and he's down in Judah and you have those two tribes represented there. And they ultimately were judged themselves in exile, in exile. God had been faithful and they had not. They turned their backs on God. Verse 8 is giving hope though, saying there's going to be a full restoration to Israel. Again, Solomon sins were born out in Jeroboam and Rehoboam. 930 BC is when they were the split kingdom at first. And those kings were were there. And then later in the days of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah wrote um, Jeremiah 31 and what we read here in chapter eight of Hebrews, um, when he wrote that the Northern kingdom had already been swept away by Assyria and that's 10 tribes. And really they never returned to the land. That's 722 BC. And then about 150 or so years later, 597, 590, the Southern kingdom, Judah was taken away by the Babylonians. Remember that in the story of Daniel, Daniel swept away with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We just heard a sermon recently on that. Ezekiel's over there with the Babylonians prophesying. You have Jeremiah back at home base in Judah, but he's watching his vulnerable land with a depleted people watching his city burn down. You have lamentations. You have, he's watching the city burn, the temple burn. All of this was because of their covenant unfaithfulness in a bilateral covenant. This is no way to live. But ultimately there's hope. Verse eight of Hebrews eight, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's gonna be an ingathering. Romans 11 says the millennial kingdom is where all of this will be fulfilled. Why did it go this way? Jeremiah 11, just to give you a little quick sweep on that. Their gods had become as many as their cities. Oh, Judah, Jeremiah says, as many as the streets of Jerusalem are your altars you've set up to shame. Worldliness had invaded Judah and they were sent into exile. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14 um, gives a little glimmer of hope though. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill you to you, my promise and bring you back to this place, there'll be welfare, etc. There was hope, but only a few chapters later, the hope goes from a physical hope where, where Judah is brought back to the land in 70 years to the spiritual hope of Jeremiah 31, which is new covenant hope that you get. Look, one reason I didn't know this until I was preaching this, one reason really to go through this survey of Old Testament is to understand that we fit in this storyline within the New Testament of the redemption story. You have the blessing of the new covenant. The blessing moves beyond coming out of exile to having a heart promise made. So if the old covenant was doomed to fail, literally doomed from the start, why did God make this covenant? There's grace there. There's grace in seeing that you can't keep the law. 
you hear that? The law tells us the difference between right and wrong, what to do and what not to do. Just by learning the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you can learn a lot about what to do and not do in life, and it will help you. That's why even in common grace, government, there's a representation of the law of God, even in our, our state laws and national laws at levels in terms of we can't kill people. You go to jail for that or you get executed for that. I mean, there is common grace in the law that is given, but the law does something even greater for the Christian. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. The new covenant law, the law that changes your heart on the inside has set you free from a law that's called sin and death. Now, what's defined as sin and death here? Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, uh, like, likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The law is weakened by the flesh. What does that dynamic look like? Well, that's described in Romans 7 in the earlier chapter. It's an inescapable reality where the law is a mirror to show us our sin. It reflects sin back to ourselves. Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. They're talking about the old covenant law. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet. Remember Paul, he had the law nailed. He had all the T's crossed, I's dotted, Pharisee of the Pharisee, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, had extra biblical laws nailed. He was at the top of his class, studied under Gamaliel, probably had all the Old Testament memorized, nailed it. He's perfect, right? But then as a new covenant, transformed Christian, he's looking at the law and saying, wait a minute, covetousness, I have not nailed it. My heart wants things that I should not have. And I'm condemned by that. And as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian, he's saying, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. His covetousness wasn't awakened. It was live, it was happening, but it wasn't reflected back to himself. It was as if it was dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but... But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It was stricken to the heart. The very commandment that promised life proved to me death. To prove to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Sin was killing him and the, the law showed him that he needed to repent of it. The law reveals our sin. But there's grace and failure. There is. Think of a child who runs where he ought not run. As a parent, sometimes we have to say, don't run. Don't run, you're going to get hurt. But then we let them fail. And they skin their knee. And they learn not to run. Or you hope they learn not to run there again. Right? 
I mean, the law is like that. Even in common grace, even in employment opportunities, we need to allow people to get outside of their depth and fail so that they can learn to succeed. But in Christ, the law is a guardian, Galatians 3, 24. It's a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. It brings us to the Lord. Listen to the words of Spurgeon. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he shows us what the law really is. Take, for instance, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, says one, I have not broken that commandment. Stay, says the Spirit of God, till you know the spiritual meaning of that command. For everyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is also the command, you shall not murder. Oh, says the man, I've never killed anyone. I have not committed murder, but the Spirit says, stay. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Even the sins that pass in front of us, that, you know, the law is what awakens those and shows us what we need. We need to have a fresh dependence upon the Lord, don't we? Look at the law. Don't run from it. Embrace it. But then Allow the law to cause your heart to fall open to the Lord in humble dependence. We've been given a unilateral covenant where Christ is our guarantee. Our relationship with the Lord is not at stake like it was in the Old Testament. Our relationship is not on the line. We are under no condemnation, secure in the Lord, completely dependent upon him We've moved from a stage before Christ where we would go, what is God really like at all? I'm not sure. I know a lot about God. To being actually able to ask God himself what he's like and have him talk directly to us. This is what we have in the new covenant. We've moved from the Dewey Decimal System in the encyclopedic card catalog, which I never mastered in grade school ever. And guess what? I never needed to. Isn't that great? We never had to be Old Testament Israelites. We never had to master that. We never had to know it. We might have gone. I mean, all the different, you know, click slides, beep, beep. This is the Dewey Decimal System. I'm going crazy in those classes. I'm going, I'm never going to understand that. And I never had to. Now I have something that's amazing called Google. (laughs) Well, in the New Testament, we have Christ. We just have immediate access just by placing our complete trust in Christ alone by faith. Next week, we're going to unpack what this really looks like in the new covenant, the relationship we have with him.